Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, August 19, 2018. My name is Leah M. I am your moderator for this morning. The share IDs for Friday, August 17th are the following. For the 7 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 11,802, that's 11802. And for the 10 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 11,803, that's 11803. This morning, A Vision for You presents Back to Basics, Steps 1, 2, and 3. The purpose of the big book is to change your life through a 12-step process of personal transformation leading to a spiritual awakening. The foundation of our spiritual process is having a personal experience of powerlessness. Powerless, we admit that all our efforts, our resources, our energy, our knowledge, willpower, and all the desire we can muster up have not delivered the hoped for results. Lack of power is our dilemma. We have to find a power greater than ourselves. In step two, there is hope. A power greater than ourselves will restore us to sanity. Recovery requires revolutionary and drastic proposals. We are going to take some actions that will lead us into the realm of the spirit. In step three, we are now ready for a decision. There's no need to procrastinate. Our window of opportunity is open. Joining us this morning to speak on steps one, two, and three is Larry Kay, a recovered compulsive overeater, beloved friend from Illinois. Larry is a loyal servant of A Vision for You and Overeaters Anonymous, dedicated to this way of life and to carrying this message of recovery. And welcome to you, Larry Kay. Thanks so much, Leah. Uh, just let me know if you can hear me okay. I hear you well. I'm on, oh, good. And Thank you're not you on speakerphone, is that correct? Correct. Excellent. Correct. Thank you. So, if it, yeah, if the sound, if it, if it's not working well, just let me know. Will do. And I will see what I can do. Okay. Thanks so much for your service, Leah. And, and it's just, it's a real privilege. I I really enjoy. Um, haven't done a special edition in a while, but I really enjoy doing these. And more than anything, it keeps me steeped in this way of life. It keeps me steeped in the in the learning. You know, that's that was the big secret I never was aware of, when I came here you know, crawling on my knees, um, my hands were out and uh, my life was, was, was horribly, horribly unmanageable. You know, when I, when I got to uh, just, just a brief little bit of qualification, very brief, um, when, when I arrived here, I will tell you that um, I was working in the, the field, in my profession, in the field of psychology, and I was working with, with an individual <clears throat> who, and we were not while I was while, while I was familiar with the twelve steps on a, on the on a very uh, periphery sort of level on that basis, um, I, I didn't know much about it at all. I did realize that some people were getting help, and I was working with a gentleman on some other you know relational issues and so forth. And it turned out that he had sixteen years of recovery um, in the twelve steps uh, twelve step uh, program, and and that's not why he was there to see me. Um, he was, um, he was sober. He was abstinent, if you will, for many years. Um, it was just some other issues. And, and I'll never forget, this was one of my Ebby 
Ebby moments. Um, didn't realize it at the time. But I, I remember talking to him, and, and he was relating to me, and he was telling me about um, just some, some of his addictions, you know, from, from the past and, and just what, what his program meant to him and the fellowship that he was in and so forth. And he said, well, he goes, you, you probably really <laughs> wouldn't understand that aspect because it's, he talked about it being an experiential journey for him. And, and I said, you know, I, I, you're right. I, I don't think I could on that basis. And it just came to me in that moment because I was really trying to identify with him. And I said, you know, but, the, but I'll tell you, I, I definitely have an issue. I've always had an issue with food, just the way you describe. I, I, uh, I try to put it down. And, and, I, and I said, like so many people, of course, um, I, I just I can't, can't uh, stay. It can't, I can't stay stopped, right? And, um, and he turned the tables on me <clears throat> in a very nice and calm and peaceful way. He said, well, he said, that's interesting. He said, I think there's a fellowship. I, I can't recall the name of it, but I, th I think it's Overeaters Anonymous. <laughs> and he said that, you know, that, that might be helpful to you. And, of course, it was six months before I ever, um, uh, the unmanageability and the noose around my neck began to tighten uh, before I investigated um, Overeaters Anonymous and it went online and really began to identify in it. And I'd like to tell you that I came into the rooms at some point and I put the food down and uh, went on and worked the steps in sequence and recovered in a short period of time. But that was not part of my trajectory. That was not part of my story at all. I actually languished in, <clears throat> in Overeaters Anonymous for some five years. And that the disease, the noose around my neck was going to tighten some more, right? The quicksand, I was going to thrash around some more in the quicksand. And that's why it's a good segue um, into what we're talking about this morning. You know, there's, uh, there's special additions on, on each of these steps. I'm going to deal with them more in totality. Um, and, and I'm going to focus on them. You know, the first three steps in this program of action are, are often referred to as the preparation steps. In that, they, they are the preparation for the actual work and we're, that we're going to talk about this morning. But before I do, I want to share with you the shorthand that was shared with me by someone much wiser than me um, a number of years ago on the, on the 12 steps. Um, the shorthand um, that he shared, he said, you know, steps, Larry, steps one, two, and three are going to get you right with your higher power. Steps four through seven are going to get you right with yourself. Steps eight and nine are going to get you right with others. And steps 10, 11, and 12 are going to keep you right with your higher power with yourself and with others. And that made a lot of sense to me, that shorthand, one, two, and three, getting right with my higher power, this notion of a higher power, four through seven, getting right with myself, eight and nine, getting right with others, 10, 11, and 12, keeping me right with my higher power, with myself and with others. And that was true then, and it still is true today. And I never saw it in its totality. These steps were something that I, well, I'll tell you, I don't know about you, but I, I memorized them very quickly. I mean, I'll be darned if I'm going to be the person in the meeting that, that, you know, that is mouthing the words and reading. You know, I, I want to have these memorized. But that's certainly not enough, right? It's going to take action. So, you know, where I want to start this morning is, is I, want to, I want to talk a little bit about the, um, the, the doctor's opinion is the foundation for the entire program of action. So as I study the true nature of the problem, I needed to ask myself an important question. 
And by building a foundation of recovery on a canvas of truth, understanding the problem, or am I building it upon a canvas of falsehood where I don't understand the problem? Because I'm reminded that at, at its genesis, at its, at its very beginning, this program is designed to stop people, in our case, to stop people from eating themselves to death. And what if, regardless of my circumstances, good or bad, my out-of-control eating comes as a result of an obsession of the mind, this mental twist that I'm, I'm sort of biologically mandated to seek ease and comfort from eating, and it's beyond my mental control, and my unaided will will never be enough. And as Leah was talking about, the main problem is going to center in my mind. And if that's the case, if that's the case, if that's embedded in the problem, a diet's not going to work. An exercise plan won't work. A surgical procedure won't work. It, won't, it, it may work for others. These things work for others if you're normal, but I'm not normal. I had to understand my problem. So this morning, you know, we're going to focus on this idea is, you know, what is the problem? And once I have a clear understanding of what the problem is, what is the solution to my problem? And then how am I going to bring that solution to light? Because if you're one of us, but you don't entirely buy into this explanation, the problem you know, that we're going to talk about, that's okay. You don't have to. But just know this. As long as I continue to engage in an internal debate on the premise of the problem, I will never bring this particular solution to light because my best efforts are going to be diluted. They're diluted. They're going to be ineffective because I, even on a subconscious basis, I'm going to try to prove to myself that I don't have the problem. I don't believe in it. And thus, I'm going to continue to seek my own solution. I'm going to continue to go out and, and work these, these mental gymnastics and try to operate you know, and find something that's going to, something of my own willpower that's going to give me mastery over this, and it's never going to happen. And if you're like me, I'm going to continue to sabotage myself. See, because my unconscious patterns are always going to guide my personal myths. We, we talk about all action is born in thought, and I believe that's true. Every action that I take or the actions I don't take they're born in my thinking. And so the information we're studying this morning, more than anything, is an invitation to change. Because, you know, my intellectual pride, <laughs> that's, that's going to keep me thrashing about in the quicksand. So I got to start with, with understanding the problem. And, you know, for me, it's going to start with the doctor's opinion. See, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous tells us in the doctor's opinion if you, if you have this illness, if you have this thing, your only shot at getting better really is what the book describes as having a complete psychic change. Now, you will not have a complete psychic change in the Fellowship of Overeaters Anonymous. And, and why is that? Because the Fellowship of Overeaters Anonymous was not designed to produce a complete psychic change in a compulsive overeater. The Fellowship of Overeaters Anonymous was designed as a place for the compulsive overeater to come and receive love and support while they have a complete psychic change. But that psychic change is going to happen in the program. 
the program. And the program is the first 164 pages of the book called Alcoholics Anonymous, which is our basic text. And like any textbook, it's meant to be gone through with the teacher. We, we, we happen to call our teacher a sponsor. And, and that's the deal. And it's, it was really important that I understood that. So this morning, you know, we're going to go over the first three steps, steps one, two, and three, which are often called the preparation steps, as I mentioned, and in that they are preparation for the program of action. So if you take the 12 steps and you look at them as a sequential model, steps one, two, and three are going to prepare us for the work. And the work itself, the actual recovery, is steps four through nine. And steps 10, 11, and 12 are the maintenance and growth steps. And that's how we maintain and grow what we get from four through nine, which is, of course, recovery. And until I got that, until that became ingrained in my mind, I'm going to skip around the steps. I'm going to see them as conceptual, perhaps. And why, if this wasn't, let's, you know, let's, let's just look at this and, and see, if this was not a spiritual program of action, if this was merely therapeutic in nature, so I put my psychologist hat on, right? And I, and I say, well, you come into program. All right, let's, let's throw out the, 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 the premise of the spiritual awakening. Then I'm going to get right to steps four through nine. I'm going I'm to say, you know, let's get out pen and paper. Let's do some homework. Maybe we'll take kind of a, you know, a cognitive behavioral approach. And I'm not knocking that. That works for people. I've been through that myself. It's very effective. It's just not going to work in the context of my condition here. Not for me. It's not going to keep me out of the, from eating myself to death. So I had to get really clear on the fact that I have to build a proper foundation of understanding. And I can do that quickly. I can do that slowly. I, I'd suggest you, you know, we talk about working, working the pro program like your hair is on fire. Well, you're not going to see, you know, the words, the phrase, your hair is on fire in the big book. But we get the, we get the, the premise. We don't have a lot of time in which to, to, to start this process. So one, two, and three about preparation. And we're not going to really do any changing in steps one, two, and three. We're preparing to change. So step one, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. And I should also mention that there's a principle associated with each step. You know, there's 12 principles that sort of co-align with each of the steps. So the principle of step one is truth, truth. So we're, we're really going to see the truth in step one because it's about the jump from denial to awareness. Step one is all about accepting what our problem is. We've admitted we were powerless over alcohol that our lives have become unmanageable. In the chapter uh, called The Doctor's Opinion, which is the, the, the first uh, chapter in the book, the, the, the chapter before chapter one, it's got the Roman numerals attached to it. And if you look at the, turn to the first page, Roman numeral 25, if you're following along, the first letter from, from Dr. William Duncan Silkworth, and, and so the chapter is mainly comprised of two letters by Dr. Silkworth, who was, of course, Bill W.'s uh, doctor at Towns Hospital in New York. And Dr. Silkworth was one of the foremost experts in alcoholism in this country, and um, if not the world at the time. And so Dr. Silkworth wrote two letters that make up the majority of the doctor's opinion. In, in the first letter, you'll see uh, on, on that page, the third line of that letter 
starting with in later in, in late 1934. The doctor tells us in, in, in late 1934, I attended a patient. So he's talking about Bill Wilson, who, who though he had been a competent businessman of good earning capacity, which basically means Bill W. was a, a manageable alcoholic for a really long period of time. Uh, Bill kept it going for a long time, as I did, perhaps you did, and he became completely unmanageable. Um, he, he became an unemployable drunk trying to actually kill himself. And, um, but he, it, it goes on to say he was an alcoholic of a type that I had come to know as hopeless. Remember, seemingly hopeless case, uh, case of mind and body state of mind and body, right? So this Dr. Silkworth, who had, by the way, worked with tens of thousands of alcoholics by this time, he's writing these, these letters, you know, um, he's basically telling you, look, I've seen a lot of drunks in my day. And this guy, Bill, oh my gosh, he's amongst, you know, he's among the worst I've ever seen. He, he's hopeless. This guy's a goner. And that's what he's telling us. And he goes on to say, in the course of his third treatment, you know, the third treatment at Towns Hospital for alcoholism was electroshock therapy. And in the course of his third treatment, his third go around now, and, you know, they're, 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 they're essentially attaching, ready to attach electrodes to his temples. He acquired certain ideas concerning a possible means of recovery. Now, those ideas, incidentally, come to Bill through a guy named Ebby Thatcher. So Bill, Bill gets these ideas about a means of recovery from a man named Debbie Thatcher, you know, who we'll talk about in, in step two. And Ebby got these ideas from the Oxford group. And that, that was that Christian uh, group that predates Alcoholics Anonymous. The 12 steps of AA come from the six concepts of the Oxford group. I'd like to know the history, um, you know, that, that, that we're, we're steeped in. And, and, and so that's, it's, it's pertinent for me there. So Dr. Silkworth is telling us this guy, Bill Wilson, he gets this idea about a possible means of recovery. And as part of his rehabilitation, as, as part of his getting better, he commenced to present these ideas to, to others so that they may do likewise with still others. Um, people he's helping, you know, um, have to do the same with other drunks. And, and it, uh, Dr. Silkworth says this has become the basis, the foundation of a rapidly growing fellowship, which is still growing, of course. And over a hundred of these men and their families appear to have recovered, appear to have recovered. They, they, they seem to have gotten better. And notice the, you know, the word being used here. We talk about it recovered, not recovering. And this for me is really important to step one this notion of being recovered. Because the idea uh, that, that we in OA are always recovering compulsive readers is wrong, dead wrong, incorrect. And if you want to test that out for yourself, you can actually look at the title page of the book that you may be holding right now, which tells us that, that the big book is the story of how over 100 men and women have recovered from alcoholism. In fact, it actually says 15 different times, and I'm not going to start, uh, you know, page quoting here, but you, you'll have to trust me on this. It says 15 different times in the first 164 pages of the big book, which is our, our program text, that we do recover from a hopeless state of mind and body. And the word recovering shows up in the big book exactly twice, both times it speaks to a temporary condition. So when the alcoholic starts making their amends in step nine and moves into the maintenance and growth steps in 10, 11, and 12, 
That is the point at which they have become a recovered alcoholic. And that's not up for debate. That's not my opinion. That's a fact. And, and it's a fact because it's in our literature. So remember, when you're in the rooms of OA and you get information from someone that you're, you're not sure about, I mean, I, I, I got that too, I ask them, I, I would at least empower you to ask them, where does what you just said show up in the literature? And if they say that they don't know or they don't have an answer for you, you're getting the opinion of an addict. Now, we have lovely men and women, gentlemen, who uh, are addicts in this pro you know, program. And if you want the opinions of addicts or compulsive readers, you're more than welcome to them. History shows that you're not going to build a genuine recovery on them. So I would urge you to be cautious, to be very cautious. And if you look at page 28, uh, Roman numeral uh, 28, the first full paragraph on that page, which is at the end of, of the, uh, the letter from the doctor. So this is part of the doctor's opinion. It says, we believe and suggested a few years ago that the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy, an allergy. Now, that's an important word, uh, that the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class, this class of people, and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. <clears throat> so there's a couple of things here um, we, we, uh, we just found out, uh, that we have an allergy of, of, of our alcoholic substance, which basically means we have a physical reaction to our alcoholic substance. That's not normal. The way, of, the way these foods affects our bodies is not the way food is supposed to affect human beings. And when a normal person eats food, their desire for more becomes satiated, satisfied. When we eat food, our desire for more becomes magnified, intensified, amplified. We don't get satiated or satisfied. See the difference? That is a physical reaction. The manifestation of our allergy for food is such that once the alcoholic has a drink, they have no ability to determine how many drinks that will, fo you know, will follow that first one. Now, I want to take another example of an allergy that can kill someone. My daughter, uh, Beth, has a, a peanut allergy. And the manifestation of her allergy to peanuts is throat constriction which can absolutely kill her. So when someone with this allergy eats peanuts, like my daughter, they're gonna be rushed to the hospital where they may in fact die if not treated. Now here's the interesting thing about a peanut allergy. There are many people that develop an allergy to peanuts even over time. So let's take a 19 year old, for example, who has spent a lifetime eating peanuts and all of a sudden they develop this allergy. So one day, you know, she picks up a, a handful of peanuts, tosses them back, and their throat closes up to the size of a pinhole. The ambulance is called, you know, they're, they're rushed to the hospital, and she's treated and she lives, right? And after a few minutes, the, you know, the doctor comes back in, and, and she says to the doctor, wow, you know, doc, that, that was really scary. That, I mean, it was, it was awful. I'm still shaky about the whole experience. You know, that, that whole getting rushed to the hospital thing and almost dying deal, I, I, I don't want to go through that again. You know, what, 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 do I need, what do I need to do? 
you know, any medical advice so I can avoid, you know, that from happening again. And the doctor pauses for a moment and, and says, yeah, you know, there is. Um, don't eat peanuts, right? And here's what's remarkable about that. She doesn't. <laughs> she doesn't eat them again, ever, no matter how much she liked them. I mean, it's possible she was eating them every morning, three times a day, never eats them again. And that is why we, we don't currently have a, a Peanuts Anonymous, right? It, it's, it's currently why there's no Peanuts Anonymous being planned. <clears throat> because someone like my daughter, who's allergic to peanuts, has only the physical allergy. And this is the main distinction, because we have more, you and I have more than just the physical allergy which is one component of two. The person with the peanuts has only the physical allergy. So when they come to the conclusion that putting peanuts into their body, you know, they, 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 they really don't like what happens. You know, they don't like this throat constriction stuff, right? They're able to also simultaneously come to the same conclusion, oh, I just won't do it anymore. Because when I eat peanuts, bad stuff seems to, to happen. So if I don't eat peanuts, you know, probably that bad stuff isn't going to happen. So I'm not going to eat peanuts anymore. Now, the compulsive overeater, you and me, the person with the alcoholic mind, we have that very same conversation with ourselves. And most of us, in fact, multiple times. So we don't necessarily end up in the emergency room in the hospital on, on the back end of a throat closure deal. Uh, maybe we end up on the floor of our bedroom in the fetal position in tears after a three-day binge. But oftentimes the conversation is the same. Wow, that was, that, that was really bad. I mean, I, I, I didn't like that very much. Now, this is certainly problematic. I mean, it's the reason that you can't stop once you take the first bite. But unfortunately, this is far from the biggest problem. There, there, there's something much more insidious and problematic, and we call the second aspect of the disease the mental twist. Now, I don't like to use the phrase obsession of the mind because it's misunderstood. You know, we use the word obsession in, in our society as a feeling, as if I'm feeling obsessed, uh, you know, obsessive compulsive, or we equate it with the misunderstood label, you know, labels like OCD, um, this confuses the heck out of people. All the mental twist means to me is, even when the untreated person, you know, meaning the person who has not been treated for the spiritual malady, even when that person put the alcoholic substance down, perhaps for several hours, days, months, or even years, there comes a day when that very same person is driven back to picking up the first bite of their alcoholic foods. And what happens then to the allergy when they pick up, it's now triggered. And thus the vicious cycle is repeated over and over and over again. We read that in the doctor's opinion, right? So sticking with the problem in step one, because we got to get clear on this. We got to be clear on this. It says on page XXVIII, bottom paragraph. Excuse me for a sec. It says, Men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. The sensation is so elusive that while they admit it is injurious, they cannot after a time differentiate the true from the false. To them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one, and they are restless, irritable, 
and discontented unless they can again experience that sense of ease and comfort, which comes at once by taking a few drinks, drinks which they see others taking with impunity, you know, without consequence. And after they succumb to the desire, as so many do, and the phenomenon of craving develops, they pass through the well-known stages of a spree, emerging remorseful. You know, we, we feel shame, remorse. We're, I don't care if you're on step nine. We're, we're remorseful and shameful. With a firm resolution not to drink again. And this is repeated over and over. And unless this person can experience an entire psychic change, there is very little hope of his recovery. Bill Wilson was taught in college, a good writer doesn't repeat the same words again and again. So he uses, he tried to change it up a bit. He says, unless this person can experience an entire psychic change, spiritual awakening, personality change, spiritual transformation, there's very little hope of his recovery. So the bottom line is, if I can raise my hand, identifying it, if any of us can raise our hand, allergy of the body, check, yep, I got that one. Mental twist as, de as described here, yes, sir. Am I powerless? And is my life sprinkled with some degree of unmanageability? If you can raise your hand to that, you're one of us. You've taken step one. Now, you can complicate step one more if you'd like to. You're welcome to do that. Let me direct your, uh, your attention to the specific instructions for step one. It's on page 30 in More About Alcoholism, second paragraph. It says, we learned that we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholics. This is the first step in recovery. The delusion that we are not like other people or presently maybe has to be what? Has to be smashed. And there we are. So now you can spend days, weeks, months, years debating, analyzing, uh, synthesizing, you know, building up something new, writing about, philosophizing about the meaning of step one, if you choose to do that. And, 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 and maybe you won't die during the period of reflection and analysis. All the while, as I had frosting smeared on my face, you know, then my hats are off to you. But rest assured, step one does not have to be that complicated. It's merely a conclusion of the mind. Now, you can spend, you know, all that time analyzing, but you don't need to do it. We can move on to step two. If we, if we, if we can identify in with the twofold nature of the disease, algae of the body, obsession of the mind, great. Let's move on. Now, in the chapter, We Agnostics, uh, we Agnostics, which begins on, um, on page 44, it starts with a good review of step one. It says, in the preceding chapters, you have learned something of alcoholism. We hope we have made clear the distinction between the alcoholic and the non-alcoholic. So here you go. If when you honestly want to, you find you cannot quit entirely, or if when drinking you have little control over the amount you take, you're probably alcoholic. And if that be the case, you may be suffering from an illness which only a spiritual experience will conquer. Now, let me repeat that last part. If that be the case, you may be suffering from an illness which only a spiritual experience will conquer. Now we know what we have to do in order to recover from alcoholism. We must undergo a life-changing spiritual transformation. 
Now, now for me, I don't know about you, but this was not the answer I was expecting to find in O'Readers Anonymous. But I had to face the fact that this was a fatal progressive illness. I mean, you know, prior to AA, most alcoholics either died drunk or they were locked up in jails or insane asylums. So in the middle of page 44, the authors once again tell us our options. And it says, to one who feels he is an atheist or agnostic, agnostic means without knowledge. It says, such an experience seems impossible, but to continue as he is means disaster, especially if he is an alcoholic of the hopeless variety. To be doomed in alcoholic death or to live on a spiritual basis are not always easy alternatives to face. So again, they're giving me the only two alternatives I have if I'm an alcoholic of the hopeless variety. Either more food or finding a relationship with a higher power that will solve this problem. Remember, the simplicity of what is my problem, what is the solution to my problem, and then how am I going to bring that solution to light? So, and here the thing is, not only is a spiritual experience possible, they're telling me it's a guarantee. It's a guarantee, provided I keep an open mind and take the steps as described in the big book. So it continues to tell us in the next paragraph on page 44 that no matter what my present beliefs are, there is hope for me. And the book continues. It says, but it isn't so difficult. About half our original fellowship were of, acts, uh, were, were of exactly that type. At first, some of us tried to avoid the issue, hoping against hope we were not true alcoholics. But after a while, we had to face the fact that we must find a spiritual basis of life or else. And perhaps it's going to be that way with you, but cheer up. Something like half of us thought we were atheists or agnostics. Our experience shows that you need not be disconcerted, which means troubled. Now, I find it miraculous that a, a newcomer can start the OA program without any specific beliefs, or for that matter, without any beliefs at all whatsoever. All the person needs is open-mindedness and the willingness to believe that we believe this program works. And let us assure you, we do believe. The 12 steps have changed our lives and the lives of, of millions of other people, and, that, and that's been my experience. So I, for me, you know, I, I did not, I was born into a particular theology, or a, a religious background. My parents uh, followed a certain thing, but they, it was not of a personal nature, a personal relationship. And, and frankly, um, it was more, my experience with it was more revolving around um, being with family. Food was always a part of it, some specific foods. There wasn't discussions of a personal relationship with a higher power. We never talked in my home about God. As a matter of fact, in my experience, and, and I'll give you more details and my takeaway from it, there was a, um, uh, my stepfather, so my mother was remarried. My stepfather had a sister, has a sister. So here I am, a little boy. She was very, very sick. Some sort of, I, I don't know what her physical malady was, but she was very sick and she was, she was dying. She went into the hospital. I don't, I don't think it was addiction, it was something else. Someone came to see her who had a belief in uh, Christianity, which was not uh, her, the theology, the religion she was born into. 
And the person began apparently to talk to her about some of those things. And anyways, long and short of it is she got better. Now, I don't know what was operating there, but it's, I'm just giving you factual, a factual deal. She got better. And so she went from someone who was dying of some, some illness and, and without a lot of hope, and she was exposed to, to some, some ideas, and she got better. And so she became Christian. Now, let me tell you, here's my takeaway. No one ever sat me down and said she was a nut job. No one ever said, hey, Larry, sit down. I want to tell you about this woman. She's a nut job. I want you to know that that's not what, no, 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 that, that, that's not what happened. But that was my takeaway. Listening as a little boy to how they spoke about her, the rolling of the eyes, the laughter, that sort of thing. So my takeaway was when someone believes in a personal relationship to a higher power, this is my takeaway, they're a little bit cuckoo. And I carried that sentiment with me for many, many years. And then when I, you know, became embedded in science within my field and I worshipped at the altar of data, all the more reason to reject any, 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 any notion of having a personal relationship to a higher power. Just wasn't my experience. And, you know, maybe it was the, uh, maybe, maybe my feeling was it was kind of like the opiate of the masses, keeps people in check, keeps them, you know, treating each other better, hopefully, irrespective of, you know, history and so on and so forth. That was my, that was my intellectual, prideful way that I looked at it. So when I'm, you know, I'm sharing that with you because when I come into the rooms of OA, as Leigh always says, with tombstones in my eyes, you know, that, that, that's me crawling in. Uh, you know, when you talk about a personal relationship to God, it's like, check, please. You know, I'm, 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 I'm not uh, listening. Now, because my life continued to get unmanageable and I did see people getting better in this program, and I, did, I really did like the idea of, of, of um, you know, group therapy. That's fun. I can listen. I can talk. Maybe that's what this 12-step, you know, this 12-step program is. So I thought, and if I could benefit as my hands are out, if I could benefit from that, good. What can I get from it? Can I begin to lose weight? Can I get some mastery over this? Um, I'll, I'll direct my will power towards that and see what I can get from it. Um, and, and then when I, after I start that and I, I convene the committee of three, we'll, we'll discuss it, the merits. You know, the, oh, you know the three, me, myself, and I. Yeah, we'll talk about that. And I'll take uh, counsel with uh, one of the three. That's how I approached it. And all my half measures in OA got me nothing. See, I, I was not, I had not done, built the sufficient, sufficient foundation in steps one, two, and three. Perhaps I accepted the problem or the notion of the problem was, as it was laid out. But let me tell you, I did not believe in the possibility that a power greater than me could restore me to sanity. So I could move on with the rest of the steps. I could make an affirmative declaration in the third step. I could do all the work, which I did, and all those half measures without the proper foundation availed me nothing. I was dabbling in the steps. I was do, you know, doing some busy work waiting for a therapeutic change, a cognitive behavioral change, something through my perceptive lens that I saw as a solution, 
but it was, trust me, the sponsors that I had, they were not Sherpas. They were not guides. I was running the show. But when I called them at, at the precise time they told me to call them, I was always respectful. So if you were a bug on the wall and you're watching me, it would have appeared that I was a good student. After all, I was always a good test taker. I have a pretty good memory. I can write reasonably well. I always did well in school. So I would look like a, the part of a good student. But I was getting nowhere. And my life, I got bigger and bigger. And my life got more and more unmanageable because I had not built the foundation necessary. There were people eventually when the disease beat me into a state of reasonableness and someone cracked open the big book and brought it alive for me and said, look, buddy, you're going to, these early chapters from the doctor's opinion to Bill's story, there is a solution more about alcoholism. They are essential because you're building a foundation of understanding and clarity around the problem. Because if you don't get clear about, uh, about uh, the problem, then any solution, and, and it sure appears that you've been trying lots of self-will types of solutions, any solutions, you know, is going is to be the route you're going to take. And that's what I did. He said, but if you're clear on the problem, then, which is lack of power, then clearly, if you are powerless, then obviously you're going to have to access a power greater than you. And that's all that was necessary in step two. So let me go back now into we agnostics. And, and, and it says on page 44, at the bottom of 44, it said if a mere code of morals or a better philosophy of life were sufficient to overcome alcoholism, many of us would have recovered long ago. But we found that such codes and philosophies did not save us. No matter how hard we tried, we could wish to be moral, we could wish to be philosophically comforted. In fact, we could wish these things with all our might. I certainly tried to. But the needed power wasn't there. Why? It goes on. Because our human resources, as marshaled or directed, right? Marshaled. Our human resources, as directed by the will, were not sufficient. They failed utterly. I kept trying to use a better philosophy of life, another book, on hope, another book on change, but my human resources as marshaled by the will were not sufficient, they failed. So the last line is saying that my human resources, which is the only thing that I had going for me, as directed by my self-will, has not worked in the past, is not enough, and will continue to fail me when it comes to combating my disease. And the book continues, lack of power, that was our dilemma. We had to find a power by which we could live. And it had to be a power greater than ourselves. Obviously it did. But where and how are we to find this power? And then it goes on. Well, that's exactly what this book is about. Its main object is to enable us, or enable you to find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. And notice that it does not say that this power is going to help us solve the problem, but that this power greater than ourselves will solve our problem. And the book goes on. That means we've written a book which we believe to be spiritual as well as moral. And it means, of course, that we're going to talk about God. 
you know, that word that I didn't care for very much. So it's telling me the main object, the very reason this book exists is to enable me to find a power greater than myself, which is going to solve my problem. Now, if I can be open, just a little crack, little crack in my, in the egg here, and I could be open that maybe just maybe there's a possibility that there's a power greater than me that can restore me to sanity, that can solve this problem. If I can say yes to that, how about this? How about you're out there and you're saying, you know what? I'm 99% sure that there isn't a power. But uh, you know what? Maybe just maybe there's a tiny possibility there's one. If you could say yes on that basis, you've taken step two. That's, that's my suggestion. Now, if, if, um, you know, if, if you come to this program and, uh, you know, uh, you have a firm, firm belief in a, in a deity or a higher power, and you always have since you were five years old, um, that may make your road easier. It may. It's not assured that it will, but it may. But you don't have to have that. You can come to this program just like me where there were so many obstacles to believing in a power greater than myself that, you know, it was just at some point the disease convinced me to be open to the possibility. And I frankly was going to approach this and prove that this is all fantasy, but at least I was going to approach it the way, the way the big book directs me, you know, I was going to approach it on that basis. And, you know, it goes on, um, on page 570, uh, in the third, third edition book, or 568 in the fourth edition, talks about the spiritual experience. And in paragraph three on page 570, or excuse me, um, uh, in the fourth edition, uh, 568, it says, most emphatically, most emphatically, we wish to say that any alcoholic capable of honestly facing his problems in light of our experience can recover provided or if he does not close his mind to all spiritual concepts. He can only be defeated by an attitude of intolerance or belligerent denial. We find that no one need have difficulty with the spirituality of the program. Willingness, honesty, and open-mindedness are the essentials of recovery, but these are indispensable. So the big book authors tell us, they tell me it's my arrogance, it's my short-sightedness, that keeps me in the darkness and blocks me from the sunlight of the spirit, which is the only thing, the sunlight of the spirit through this awakening, which is the only thing that can help me. And if I remain arrogant and short-sighted, but I do a perfect fourth step and my columns, I mean, you could take a ruler and, and I, I, you know, I color in between the lines and I do it thoroughly. And I, and I, boy, when I give away, you know, those defects of character and, and so forth in the fifth step, boy, am I articulate and can I give it away in a way that my sponsor says, wonderful, magnificent. And I'll make amends better than anybody. You did it well, I'm going to do it 10 times better and I'm going to be more thorough and I'm going to fly on airplanes to get to people and I'm going to do all this stuff and, and, I am gonna, and I'm going to mean it when I tell them about this change. I'm not kidding around. And I do it that way on that basis. And yet if I, in the midst of that, if I maintain my arrogance and short-sightedness that keeps me in the darkness and blocked off from the sunlight of the spirit, all the, all the A's for effort that you earned are for nothing. 
are for nothing. Because even in making restitution for harms done, it was never necessarily about forgiveness or reconciliation. It was about the change that would occur in me and being brought into alignment with a higher power so that I could live a life connected to that higher power where that higher power is in charge and I'm not. And you cannot have that, if, if Larry, if you remain arrogant, respectful but arrogant, short-sighted but intellectual, hard worker, look good on paper but still arrogant and short-sighted, you will remain in the darkness, Larry. Even though you're, and, and, and you know, and the higher power, how, no matter how merciful, I was still blocked off. So if I go back to page 46, the big book authors, they ask us to develop our own concept of God. In other words, they want us to find a God of our own understanding. And in the second paragraph on 46, it says the following, much to our relief, we discovered we did not need to consider another's conception of God. Our own conception, however inadequate, was sufficient to make the approach, to effect a contact with him. As soon as we admitted the possible existence of a creative intelligence, a spirit of the universe underlying the totality of things, we began to be possessed of a new sense of power and direction, provided there's a contingency if, if we took other simple steps. We found that God does not make too hard terms with those who seek him. To us, the realm of the spirit is broad, roomy, all-inclusive, never exclusive or forbidding. To those who earnestly seek, it is open, we believe, to all. So they inform us that we're going to take some actions which will lead us to our creator. And that's, you know, with step three, we move on to step three. We made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. You know, the third step is found in its entirety in the big book on pages 60 through 64. So step three was merely making an affirmative or positive declaration, something we say out loud. And the words, the, the exact words and the order of the words are less important than the sentiment, the feeling. You know, the idea that we are going to move on with the work. And I always thought it was about saying the words and feeling, you know, wonderful about saying the words. Maybe I'm lighting a candle. Maybe I'm, you know, in a very special location. If you're taking, you know, I, I, if you're taking a step three in a cathedral or a temple or overlooking a beautiful, you know, mountain scene, but remain like me, arrogant and short-sighted, it won't do anything because you're not going to be prepared with the foundation in which to proceed with the rest of the work. Conversely, you take a step three in a, you know, in a shack and it's below zero outside, no candle lit, not even with another person, but you have that foundation of openness to follow the steps precisely. I defy you not to recover. I've met, you know, rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed this path. Step three is, is, doesn't have to be complex. It doesn't have to come with lots of wonderful feeling and hope and loving thoughts. I mean, you're, you're, you're just out of the food. And you're, and you're feeling better as we hear, right? You're feeling anger better and fear better. 
and you're, and you're feeling like this program won't work for you better and you're afraid that it's not going to work for you and that you're one of the unfortunates, that's okay. You can still say those words and essentially make a decision. The decision, I, 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 I made a decision. I plan to meet someone at 3 o'clock today. I'm going I'm to meet this friend at 3 o'clock. I'm not there yet making decision. I'm going to have to, at some point, I'm going to have to get dressed, get on my underwear here, right? Get, jump in the shower. Sorry for the visual, but you know, like, like I'm going to have to take some action. So a decision in and of itself means nothing. I made a decision many years ago to, you know, to, to, to complete a, you know, my education and I didn't complete my education. Then I began to stumble through the steps that would get me there and trudge. And some days it's, it was horrible. Some days it was wonderful. Some days I, I felt like giving up. Some days I failed. You know, maybe I wrote a paper or I messed up on some research or I did, you know, it was, I trudged, but I, I followed some instructions and I didn't have to follow the instructions perfectly. In fact, I couldn't follow, follow them perfectly if I tried but I was going to follow them precisely because at some point I was going to be continue to take the steps and walk towards a particular outcome. And eventually you get there. And when you get there somehow in the context of this spiritual program of action, I don't know how it happened that I didn't feel that I arrived or that I felt more, um, you know, had a greater ability to be of service to others. That was part of the dimmer switch of, the awakening coming on. Mine wasn't a, you know, flip the switch, the lights go on and I'm recovered. That's not how it happened for me. It was a lot of stumbling and thrashing about. But did I have to put my food down, my alcoholic substance down 100%? You betcha I did. Can you imagine? Here's, here's the problem sometimes I have with 12-step programs in some of the rooms. And I love the rooms and I love the people in the rooms. It doesn't matter the, the meeting. I mean, I love vision. We study the big book. It's, I love the people I've gotten to know. But I can really go into a meeting anywhere. And even if there isn't good recovery, maybe I can carry a message of hope, of depth and weight, not of my opinion as an addict, but of this message found in this book. And maybe I say something that may have some meaning, maybe not. But, you know, the thing about it is, is the, the message has become watered down in in, in our fellowship. And it was like playing the game of telephone. You know, the message, you know, goes around 10 people. And by the time it gets to the 10th person, that message has fundamentally changed. Now, can you imagine, imagine hundreds of thousands of people over, you know, 80, 90 years? Has the message changed? I was in a meeting yesterday and I heard, and it, it, I get what he's saying. This guy has tremendous recovery. Here's what he said. You know, I, I heard, you know, meeting makers make it. And, and you know, uh, in his case, that means something to him. But see, he's recovered as a result of having a spiritual awakening that drove out the obsession. The obsession was eradicated. And what he's conveying is now he wants to go to meetings. He doesn't want the alcoholic substance. And he desires to go to meetings. And he could be of service and stay on the beam of recovery. And so... He, it's different in his life when he says meeting makers make it. But if you don't have the foundation and you hear that, you may be like me. 
You tell me to go to six meetings, I'll go to 60. I'm going to do it better than you because quantity will, will push the ball over, over the, the goal line. Oh, no, it didn't work that way. Because I'd, I'd go to three meetings on a Saturday and I'd be into the pudding, you know, into the pizza, the pudding, and the Pop-Tarts by, you know, by 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And I wonder how I had crumbs and sauce on my face. And, you know, what we're, you know meeting makers make it. So I guess, I guess what I'm saying is, is that this program, this experiential practical program of action, and step three, all we're saying, it's very simple. You know, we're going to offer ourselves to God, you know, but we're, we're going to do it in a way that essentially, if you were just to say, and you make an affirmative declaration, God that I don't believe in and don't understand, I'm going to move on with the rest of the steps. Amen. Something like that. <laughs> or no amen. Okay, great. You've taken step three. If, you know what will tell us if you've taken step three? If you move on with the rest of the work and you follow the instructions precisely. That's more than sufficient. Now, you can write a beautiful, flowery, lovely uh, step three, you know, affirmative declaration, or you want to call it a prayer that's very customized for you and has tremendous meaning, and you can take it, you know, um, you know uh, uh, at a beach, uh, seeing lovely things, and if that works and you've moved on with the rest of the steps and you, you, you are doing the work to bring the solution to light, that's sufficient as well. The problem that I see sometimes, and I, boy, it takes one to see, you know, to see it, and I, I know it for me is I tried all these self-will types of things thinking if I write the proper step three, if I say it with the right feeling, that's going to push the ball over the goal line and produce this essential psychic change that brings me into alignment with my higher power, and I was wrong because all that was there was the work. The work engages the dimmer switch, not the sentiment or feeling. The work in four through nine engages the dimmer switch. And it begins to, I, I begin to become awakened. And before you know it, if I follow these instructions precisely, I am among the recovered, those in whom the problem has been solved. And then the change happens. So um, I'm going to wrap up so we can open it to questions um, just shortly here. And I want to tell you that my experience today is that, and it's amazing, I had a discussion with someone that I'm sponsoring yesterday. We, we, were, we were after our meeting. We sat outside, he and I. And, you know, he said, I hear this sometimes on occasion, and it's so gratifying. It's so wonderful. And he, he said, you know, Larry, and we're, but by the way, if it, for the first time in his life, you know, if someone asked him what step he's on, he could tell them. You know, he's in the midst of step nine, and he's done it in sequence this time. So I don't know what, what, what his higher power has in store for him, but I have a sneaking suspicion. I've seen it again and again. And he said, so he laid it on. He said, Larry, you know, I, I just got to tell you, I'm so grateful, so thankful, you know, you know, just this relationship with you, it's changed things. And, and I remember, um, you know, slight crosstalk here, but I remember um, what Leah said, and it just stuck with me, and I, you know, we, there's no original thoughts here. You're not going to get original thought in the context, context of this program out of, out of my head. But I remember also saying that to her. She might not even remember when this happened, but, 
she said something that I stole from her, which is, you know, thank you for noticing God's handiwork. And I'm like, wow, you know, that person, it wasn't a throwaway statement. It was a statement that was delivered with humility, and you could tell this person shows up again and again. And I've met so many people like that. And so I said that to him. I said, well, you know, thank you for noticing God's handiwork. I'm not being a martyr, but it really is true that if there wasn't a relationship with this higher power that I still don't completely understand, none of this would be possible. I wouldn't be in a position to carry this message, you know? And so that's what, what, what I would tell anybody. There's nothing more beautiful than building the proper foundation and the preparation steps one, two, and three, where you essentially get right with this notion of a higher power. And then you're in a position to move on with the rest of the steps and do the work, no matter how many times you've done it before, no matter how many years you've spent in, um, in Overeaters Anonymous. I'll leave you with this, because I, I love this. Someone once said, you know, have you been in, uh, you know, someone talks, talked about how they had been in 12-step um, in, in, uh, programs for 30 years, which sounds really, that's quite a, extraordinary that someone sticks with something for 30 years. He said, you know, I've had my ups and downs. He said, I, I, yeah, I get back into the substance every so often. I, I, I hate that, you know, but, but I'm still here. And what the person said with, you know, with gentleness and grace and love and compassion, I could tell, is he said, you know, you can be in a program of action like this, a spiritual program of action for 30 years, which is amazing. Or you can be someone who, who repeats and does the, you know, is in the program one year, 30 times, same stuff. If you're here and you're doing the same stuff and you're not getting the result, then you're missing something that doesn't make you a bad person. It just means you're missing something. And maybe, maybe that's something for me was building the proper foundation in sequence in which to build a beautiful recovery so that God could do for me what I couldn't do for myself. Anyways, with that, Leah, I will pass. Thank you so much, Larry, for this valuable, very valuable and straightforward presentation on steps one, two, and three. Very inspiring this morning. Thank you so much. The share ID for today's presentation, 11,807. That's 11807. Larry Kay's contact information will be given at the conclusion of the recording, so stay tuned for that. We will now transition to a question-answer segment, and you can pose a question by pressing star 1 to unmute. Please offer your name, for including the first letter of your last name. Lucy E. Mary A. Lindsay B. Lucy E. Mary A. Lindsay B. Sherry B. Sherry B. Robin P. Robin P. Erica A. Erica A. Anyone else in this round? Bethany R. Bethany? Yes. Gotcha. Okay. That's a good group. I believe we begin with Lucy E. Is that correct? Okay, thank, thank you so, so much, Leah, for your service. And Larry, thank you so much. What a blessing. 
Uh, two, really two questions. One is uh, a repeat of how you broke down the steps. You know, like you were saying, it was about me, something's about God, something's about maintaining everything. And then the question is, if, is it your understanding that in order to work a vision for you, one would have to be in a state of desperation or like as they say sometimes, you know, your hair's on fire. Can one work this program if they're not in such a desperate state? Oh, th thanks so much for the questions. Okay, I'm going to address this. Well, the first one was um, the shorthand that, that someone had given me, I couldn't, you know, years ago for the steps in sequence. And, and he said steps one, two, and three get me right with my higher power. Steps four through seven get me right with myself. Steps eight and nine get me right with others. And steps 10, 11, and 12 keep me right with my higher power, with myself, and with others. So that's the, uh, the, the shorthand. That, ha that helped me to, to understand the program in, 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 in a broader context. So that was helpful to me. So I thought it might be helpful to others. Um, okay, the second part, I say this with love and, you know, and hopefully respect. and great. There is no vision for you program. <laughs> now, now, some people say, what, what are you talking about? Then what are we getting on here? Isn't there a you know, vision for you? The vision for you program, you will hear from people, recovered people all the time, that, um, that all it is is a study. We even say it in the beginning. You know, this is a study of the big book, a uh, paragraph or two or maybe three at a time, and then we stop and share on what was read. I have found personally that the, what got me well, in other words, when I say got me well, enabled me to have a spiritual awakening sufficient to change me, to drive out this obsession. Um, what got me well was working the steps in sequence using the textbook, which is the, 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 the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, the first 164 pages which have largely not been changed. And that's what we study on A Vision for You. So that being said, that's all that Vision for You is. Now, it's a very attractive meeting. Recovery is very attractive. Now, if you met, I always say this, <laughs> you're not asking, but I'm gonna add this. If you met me in Overeaters Anonymous, you said, you know, yeah, he says some things, they're okay, not so bad or helpful. But I was 400 pounds, mm -hmm. and I'm talking about being recovered, you might, or, or I was 70 pounds, so let's, you know, we don't want to focus too much on the physical. There's got to be some congruence with physical, spiritual, emotional. But I know, I've met many of the people on A Vision for You. I've met them face-to-face. -face. And there is a congruence in their health, their physical health, their spiritual health, and their emotional health. I have seen that. Um, so, back to your question, though, back to your question about does one need to be desperate? Yeah, I think, I think um, you know, I love uh, what someone once shared about, you know, they, they ought to have these Dutch doors when you walk into the rooms of Overeaters Anonymous, and I, I, don't, I, I don't even know how to change my own oil or fix anything, um, but, but I, I learned that Dutch doors, they, they, you have to, you know, you have to essentially, they're, they, you know, it's closed at the top, and, and, and you, because people need to crawl in. They have, they have to be that desperate through the Dutch doors to crawl in 
Yes, I, I think for me, my personal experience is I had to be desperate. I had to be desperate enough. Um, however, here's the good news for maybe someone like you or good news for me because I was only 100 pounds heavier and I don't know that you'd have to avert your gaze uh, when I was, um, you know, so that's – but we, the, the floor came up to meet us. It came up to meet me. So my level of desperation, I didn't have to be – three or four or 500 pounds or bankrupt or homeless and nor does anyone else. But yes, there, you have to be desperate. I think I, that would be my experience. So I hope that helps. Thank you, Lucy E. Mary A, your turn. Star one to unmute. Hi, can you hear me? I do. Thanks. Good to hear you, Leah. Thank you, Larry. Thank you so much. This is Mary A. Um, Larry, um, I am just coming back to, um, I was abstinent for four and a half years and, uh, I picked up last December and went crazy, crazy with the bulimia. But, um, of course the line, um, then it happened to me, my miracle, um, what you started with talking about was the purpose of this book, the big book is for you to find a power greater than yourself that will solve your problem. I loved how you stressed how it's written. It's that the power will solve your problem. Could you, um, I understand it for um, Bill Wilson, you know, when um, out of the clear blue and for so many uh, that this power solved their problem, of course, you know, when it came over them, they received the power not to pick up a drink. With food, it seems to be so different. With my bulimia, I can really identify because in a moment, in a moment, I went from insanity where I should have gained at least 300 pounds this year. That is how much food I consumed and, and binged and purged, and it was gone. Now, could you give us some, just, a, you know, um, clarification of it, some practical way that with the food it's so much different in that you know it it is not just giving up it is not just giving up uh alcohol you know um could you uh give us some idea of uh if you even understand what i'm saying <laughs> but <laughs> sure i think i do i think i do let me see let me let me see if i do and I'll start by way of a story to see if um, um so um I I go to another uh twelve step program too that's also we are focused on the big book um as the text in order to get well. Not everyone in that room is an alcoholic. Um they they but everyone in that room uh or the people that are uh, you, you, the people that come there are uh, have an alcoholic mind. Some of them are um, alcoholics, some of them are upset, uh, compulsive readers, some of them are bulimics, you know, anorexics, some of them are, you know, it's narcotics, some, some, some of them are, you know, it's behaviors. There are people on this line right now that um, uh, uh, may be uh, bulimic, like you know, I know I was, I, I use the term exercise bulimic, in other words, compensatory. I used it as compensation like you did either for what I ate or what I was anticipated eating. 
it's no different. I wanted to get rid of the get rid of the calories, and it gave me a, a, a tremendous sense of control. Now that's an outside issue, but I want you to know that I identify in. But here's the thing: in the doctor's opinion, and I and, and I'm not going to page quote here and so forth. It, it it essentially lets us know throughout the big book, starting even before the doctor's opinion, but certainly in the doctor's opinion, that your alcoholic substance has to be down 100%. So in Alcoholics Anonymous, um, and humor me here, that they, they, they have a drinking plan. <laughs> I know they do. Now, they may not call it a drinking plan, but um, they come into the rooms, and, some, and many of them, they drink juice, and they drink water, and they drink coffee, they drink all sorts of things, uh, so they have a drinking plan. In fact, I, would, I don't have to make a strong argument to say that we would die faster if we didn't have a drinking plan than if we didn't have an eating plan. It's just their drinking plan, it doesn't involve any alcoholic substance, any alcohol, right? So, so here's the thing. You and I, yes, it, it can be confusing, you know, to, to get clear on what our alcoholic food substances are that trigger that phenomenon of craving. That's going to take a, a little bit of guidance and so forth, and that's beyond my scope of understanding because I don't know, like, like I've never binged on broccoli, but maybe you have. So, so we got to get clear on what that is. I'm not going to, I don't think this is a one-size-fits-all type of deal, right? But that being said, um, I think that once we're clear on what our binge substance is, we put it down 100%. And so that I have not found it necessary as the result of working through these steps to pick up any of my alcoholic binge substances in a number of years and I, with peace and happiness. Now, I have the last I'll say is I have friends, and they're on the line right now, that were dying, that they're, they're, they're compulsive readers, but they were dying of uh, anorexia and bulimia, compensatory behaviors. It was a behavior. So, yes, they also had to put their binge substances down, but they also had the behavior to deal with. Those people that I know that have worked these steps in sequence all the way through are no longer engaging in those behaviors, and they are no longer engaging those, in those behaviors happily, peacefully, for the first time in their lives. They're on the line right now. I know it. So there's hope. There's hope for you. So I hope, I hope that helps a little bit. Thank you, Mary A., for the question. Thank you, Mary. Lindsay B., your turn. Star one to unmute. Good morning, fellow visioners. Um, good morning, Larry. Thank you so much for beautifully demonstrating God's handiwork. What an absolute joy. Um, so my question is, um, uh, I uh, really appreciate how you went into details about noticing, you know, being the perfect student and, and having to look at that arrogance and let that go. And I'm wondering, um, I hope this makes sense, what, when did you realize that something was different? You know, after you said you were kind of floundering for five years and still doing your own will, what did you notice that was different? And I, I'm thinking maybe, you, for instance, when you did your fourth step, um, did you get this sense of, oh, my gosh, I, I'm, I'm seeing something that I didn't see before, why I've been so, so clear? Did it suddenly wake up and realize about this arrogance? 
um, or, or anything you want to share that 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 you that might have been prompted by my words about that. Does sure. That yeah, you bet. It, it does. It does. And, and thank you for the kind words um, and the question. Yeah, for me, so there I was in Overeaters Anonymous uh, for approximately five years. I, uh, I have journals <laughs> of, of, of um, you know, floundering. And I, and I met some lovely, wonderful people, and I, I began to learn some things about myself and a little bit about program. I just had not followed this instruction manual um, in, in sequence, right? So um, when I finally did, it just so happens for me, I was about five years in program, I did not see this coming. Think of it this way. Picture, and, and maybe this is your experience and others on the line. Up until that time, all I had, the big book refers to it as temporary sobriety, meaning I was sober, continually sober, abstinent, on a temporary basis. <laughs> I was always fighting to stay out of the, I was always fighting at certain times to stay out of the food because the, the, the mental twist had not been treated. It had not been treated. Um, I had not had an effective, I may have had some certain spiritual experiences, but I had not had an effective, an effective spiritual awakening sufficient to drive out the obsession and change me in a way that would bring me into alignment with my higher power. So back to your, at, at five years in, I did not see it coming. It snuck up on me. But I will tell you in reflection, just like Bill wrote Bill's story, in reflection of what happened to him, he's reflecting back. When I reflect back, it so happened, I was five years in program. Looking back, it was the first time that I put the food down 100%, the binge substance, and it was very uncomfortable. I was very miserable. So I was not feeling incrementally better, I can assure you. And I, I think I just, you know, at, at that point, I did not expect a change to happen, but it so happens reflection that I worked the steps in sequence, 1 through 12. There was an absolute definable moment when I began uh, to notice a change in myself. And it wasn't like an epiphany you know, it was, it, there was some epiphany moments, but it wasn't like being sprinkled with pixie dust. But I will tell you, I can remember to this day that I had, now this is going to sound funny because it's, it's so in alignment with what the promises tell us. I was literally about halfway through step nine. Now that's crazy, right? You'll be amazed before you're halfway through. Now, I don't, I don't know if there's any magic in those words, but I'll tell you, they're divine to me because I was literally about halfway through step nine, I had done step work before that, but this time I had done the steps in sequence with the food being down imperfectly, but following the steps precisely as laid out in the big book. And there I was halfway through step nine. And it so happened that I don't know that this is neither here nor there, but there was an individual who, who I, I reached out to make amends and would not accept my amends, basically told me to go jump in the lake. And that scared me a little bit, but I had made my demonstration. And if she was ever open to me making amends, I would. But I'm, I, I, I was informed. And, you know, with what the big book says, I'm not going to, you know, chase someone down. You may get thrown out of the office. I was essentially thrown out of the office, right? But I had made my demonstration. And that's, looking back, that's when I began to feel that change. And I remember calling uh, my sponsor at the time and saying, almost the way, Bill 
uh, went to someone and said, you know, something's happened to me. I probably use those words. I just knew it. Something happened to me. I'm not sure what it is. I might have used those type of words, but I noticed it. And, and he basically, lovely man, still friends, basically tried to talk, tell me about a pink cloud and let's, let's not get over our skis here, buddy, you know. But that was indeed the change process. And since that time, all, you know, ideas, emotions, and attitudes began to change, and they were replaced with new ideas, emotions, and attitudes. I was still a psychologist. I was still a dad. I was still a friend. I was still a son. I was still, all those things, but there was a change. The dimmer switch began to move. And then I felt, here, here's something that I'll add. For the first time, I did not feel fraudulent. Are you mm. someone on the line that at times feels fraudulent? <laughs> you know, I didn't feel fraudulent. In my imperfection, I didn't feel fraudulent. And that is a freedom. Holy crap, right? That's a freedom. And it's never left me. That's the crazy thing. So stick with it. Um, and I wish you the best. Thank you. That's such a wonderful, hopeful response for me. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks, Lindsay B. Sherry B. Your turn. Can you hear me? I do. Oh, good. Thank you, everybody, for your service. Um, it's such a blessing to be able to wake up on a Sunday morning and not be able to get to church, but, you know, to get on and to hear you know, God and to feel God's presence. A um, couple of things. I jumped in. Uh, I got, you know, they say it takes a village. And I had gotten a text. I have a, a really great core group um, that I see on in my area on Wednesday nights. And so one of the gals had um, texted me and said, there's a great meeting on right now. And I was food shopping, and I said, all right, well, I'm going to jump on. And I jumped on halfway through. But the thing that I heard was um, towards the end, I heard something along the lines of, we're not perfect, but it's okay. But, you know, there might be something that we're just not getting. Something along those lines, I, I heard the young man say. And so I was struggling yesterday, and I kept saying, I don't understand so what if I just want to have a little something healthy to eat and it's not in my plan or it's not on my plan or it's, it's during a time when I'm not supposed to be having any snack or anything. I just don't understand what's the big deal if it's just a fill in the blank, some sort of healthy, you know, fruit or vegetable or something. I just don't get it. And so I had um, spoken with one of the gals and she said, you know, I can't really relate because I've been abstinent from day one. So I am struggling with other things, but I'm not struggling with that, Sherry. So maybe you should try calling this other gal, which I did. And I explained it to her. And she, at every meeting, she stands up and she says, you know, I've, I've not always been honest, but I've always come to these meetings. And so this other gal thought it would be a good idea for me to speak to her because she sounds like, you know, something I can identify with. And she said, you know, Sherry, it's not the, and I don't want to say the food, but it's not the vegetable or it's not the fruit. It's not the snack. 
It's that I just can't always have what I want mentality. And we can always have what we want. We just have to change what it is that we want. And so I kind of got it. It's, it's not that the, the, the fruit or the vegetable is going to make me overweight. It's the fact that if I have my meals and my snacks during the day, I can't just have what I want because I want it, because that's what got me to 250 pounds, that mentality. So I just have to change what I want. That's all I have to do. And I had abused my privilege. So it doesn't behoove me to continue this what's the big deal if mentality because it's going to save my life. And I said to her when I first called, you know, I love the program. I love the rooms. I love the promises. I love the miracles. I love everything about it. I just don't want to be told what I can and can't eat. And she helped me to understand that it's not about what we don't want or what we do want. It's just sticking to the plan because we have to learn that we can't always have what we want. Isn't that life? You can't always have what you want. Pardon me, Sherry. Just in the interest of time, might you be able to form a question? For Larry. Well, I guess, I guess, Larry, what I'm afraid of is, okay, I got it. But there's often times that I get it. And then two or three days later, that kind of dissipates and I'm struggling back again. Is there anything that you can say to me and or to everyone that will help when you have the mentality of, I don't want to be told what I need to do. What's the big deal? Is there something that you can offer when I, if I start to struggle with that, which I might? Sure, I'll, I'll try. The, um, well, let, let's remember, too, um, I'm going to state the obvious. Um, I am not a, a higher power. So, um, you know, you, this, the, the whole purpose of this program is to enable one, as I mentioned, to formulate a relationship with the higher power by which they can live. That's the whole idea. And, and, and one of the things that happened to me experientially by doing that and following these instructions was I had this change overcome me in which I moved from a self-centered existence, imperfectly, yes, yes, I'm human, to a God-centered existence. Now that, you know, but I do want to go back to say, and I want to read because I'm an addict with lots of opinions. Some, you know, I'll be happy to share them with you out in the parking lot. Some of them are good. Some might not be. But let's stick to the big book. It says on page XXVI, you know, doctor's opinion, it says, though we work out our solution on the spiritual as well as the altruistic plane, we favor hospitalization for the alcoholic who's, who is very jittery or befogged. I, I remember what that felt like. I didn't have to be hospitalized, but that's what they did for these gutter drunks. More often than not, it is imperative, it's really critically important, that a man's brain be cleared before he is approached, as he has then a better chance of understanding and accepting what we have to offer. At the bottom of that same page, XXVII, it says, of course, an alcoholic ought to be freed from his physical craving for liquor, and this often requires a definite hospital procedure before psychological measures can be of maximum benefit. 
I, maybe this will be helpful, maybe it won't, I don't know, but I, I heard something once said, you know, to those who understand, no explanation is necessary. To those who do not yet understand, no explanation is sufficient. Now, you sound like a lovely woman. I, I'm sure we'd be friends. Thank you. Thank but you I will tell it. you, yes, no, you do, you do. But, but I will tell you this, my own experience, that until I understood that I had to put my, I had to figure out what my alcoholic substances were, I had to put them down 100%, 100%. And then, of course, once I do put them down 100%, with no mental defense, right? I'm, I'm powerless, but I'm not helpless, but I, I'm, I'm really lacking a mental defense for long. I'm going to start to feel really, really uncomfortable. We have to be willing to go through a, a period, maybe a long period of uncomfortability. Once we put that food down, we're going to feel anger better, fear better, jealousy better. You're going to feel like punching me in the face better, all those things, because you're not, you're not numbed out by the substance. Once we do that, we gain a little bit of clarity, enough clarity in a very short period of time in which to start to embark on this practical, practical program of action. I do not want to be sponsored by someone who either is not, does not have the twofold nature of this disease. I don't want to be sponsored by my daughter. My daughter can get satiated when she has my binge substances. And sometimes she can overindulge, but she doesn't understand me, that I have the twofold nature of this disease. So I don't want my, my daughter to be sponsoring me or anyone like that because they wouldn't, be, they wouldn't be able to help me. In the same respect, I don't want someone who does, who does have my twofold nature of the disease and, and, and lack of power, but they show up to the meeting and they're drunk. I can smell the alcohol in their breath. But boy, do they speak, do they, do they whistle a good tune. They know all the slogans and all everything. And that's what we have oftentimes in Overeaters Anonymous. We have people who are reeking of alcohol, and they are lovely, wonderful, smart, intelligent, accomplished men and women, and yet they are reeking of alcohol, and they're telling you and me, just put the plug in the jug, just put your food down, so on and so forth. So I don't know if any of that resonates, but I want to tell you that Here's the hope. No matter how long you've been in this program, no matter what insights, I bet you have a high IQ. I bet you do. doesn't matter. We deal in a currency of action. You follow, you follow these instructions precisely, pocket your pride, and you follow them precisely in the big book. I defy you not to have a spiritual awakening of your own, and then you'll tell me what it feels like. So I hope that resonates a little bit, with, and, uh, and I'll pass. Thank you, Sherry B., for your question. Robin P., your turn. Star one to unmute. Robin P. Hi, thank you. Thanks. Thanks so much, Leah. Thank you so much, Larry. Oh, my goodness. I'm I'm Robin P. I'm a grateful, recovered, compulsive reader in Los Angeles. It's so great to wake up this early for this. Wow. Um, I have a question, and I just wanted to really thank you. I never heard the peanut... Um, analogy before about your daughter that was just wonderful god bless you 
I have God bumps. Um, I wanted to ask you, when you work with sponsees who don't have a higher power that's working in their lives, um, how do you help them to uh, connect with that? And I, I actually came in an atheist, and I now God is the most important relationship in my life. I have worked with a couple of people who just didn't seem to be able to find a higher power that worked for them. Can you address that? Thank you. Oh, sure. I'm happy. You know, when we get to that, to the chapter, we agnostics, um, I read with them and share. Um, I say, hey, you know what? Let's, let's see what this is here. Huh, that's interesting. To one who feels he is an atheist or agnostic, such an experience, you know, this, this, this spiritual experience, seems impossible. But you know what? To, to continue as he is means disaster especially if he is an alcoholic of the hopeless variety. To be doomed an alcoholic death or to live on a spiritual basis are not always easy alternatives to face. And we go on and we read. I don't read prematurely. I, 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 we get there quickly, as quickly as they can. And we get to that, we agnostics, and then I share with them as I have with you that I, first off, you know, um, I, I, I did not have the theology, the religion, you know, that I relied on a personal relationship in fact, um, my experience was the antithesis of that, was the opposite of that. Um, you, know, uh, uh, you know, the idea for me of a personal relationship with a, excuse me, a white elderly man in the sky, you know, I'm giving you an image, an image, right? You know, with a staff holding a staff and ruling with justice on that, that didn't work for me. I needed to develop and cultivate a different understanding of what that higher power would be. And, you know, and I had a good opportunity to start to think about what that might look like because I know how much I love my daughter. Now I've been married, you know, divorced twice, but I love my daughter and unconditionally. And I I know what that feels like. Excuse me. I'm going to take a sip of water. <clears throat> see if the words come out. I know what that feels like, and, there, and I would walk through fire for her. <clears throat> I needed a higher power like that. I needed also a higher power of mercy, not justice, because I have busted windshields and hurt people emotionally mostly. And if it was going to be, and I have stolen and I have manipulated despite looking really good on paper. And so I needed to cultivate a relationship with a higher power of mercy because if it was a higher power of justice, I can assure you I wouldn't be on the line right now because this wasn't about deserving a spiritual awakening. It was about a mer- It was about grace. I don't even use the term grace in any theological sense. If you're receiving it that way, that's perfectly fine. But grace, I needed this notion of a higher power that would do something for me despite not even deserving it based on my actions over many, many years. And so for me, in, when we get, when we build up the foundation very quickly and we get into we agnostics, I can read it and then I can crack open this big book and try to bring it alive as someone in whom the problem had been solved brought it alive for me 
we're just a link in the chain in the chain here. So if you're, I know for me, I'll just share this quickly, pride, oftentimes false pride, arrogance, belligerent denial, don't you know how important I am? You know, I love, I love, oh, Larry K, you know, Larry K. And, and, and I'm just going to tell you from my heart, you, you, nobody was looking for Larry K, really and truly. You know, a couple decades ago, nobody was looking for me because I couldn't give away something I didn't have. You know, you, you squeeze an orange, what comes out? The only thing that can, the juice. When you squeezed me, what came out was what was inside. Something, you know, it was anxiety and fear and all that. It's something, you squeeze me now, something different comes out. God has changed me. This higher power, whatever you want to call it, has changed me clearly you know, if I'm under a delusion, I'll take it because my delusion is I treat people better. I can be of service to others, even in my imperfection. So if this is all a big nothing and a big delusion, sign me up, baby. I'm, st I'm not going anywhere. So I hope that, hope that helps a little bit. Yes, wonderful. Thanks so much. God bless you. Thank you, Robin T. Erica A., you're up, star one to unmute. Hey, hi, it's Erica. Um, uh, not exactly a question. I just wanted to thank you because I'm just sort of like at the very beginning of the steps. I just went over step one with my sponsor. And um, I really relate to just like needing that little crack of hope. I believe you said something about a crack. Um, so that's sort of like what I'm just holding on to right now. So I just wanted to thank you. Oh, Erica, thanks so much. You know, it, it's funny. We're not a glum lot, so we joke around sometimes too, but we're deadly serious and earnest when it comes to this disease. Mm -hmm. But how amazing that we could like, <laughs> we could, I lead the meetings and I'm sure we, you know, Leah, we lose people um, um, and just drop off the line. Oh, not this guy again. But, um, but th this actually, you, you're going to find if you stick to this and you follow these instructions as only a human being can mm -hmm. imperfectly, um, and you pocket your pride, you watch, Erica, what happens. It's amazing. It's, mm. it's just, it's extraordinary. It really is. Thank you. So glad you're here. Thank you. Yes, glad you're here, Erica A. And our final question for today comes from Bethany R. Bethany. Hi, can you hear me? I do hear you. Thank you. Hi. Um, I was wondering if you could help me uh, identify the allergy of the body. Um, if I can get satiated pretty easily, I don't binge, but I still have to um, eat because I like the effect, so I can't honestly, when I try to quit. Okay, well, um, I think I got the question. The allergy, I mean, you know, again, it says we believe, and so this isn't the doctor's opinion that, you know, a sponsor would go through with you um, if they got well as a result of these instructions. So they have no choice but to do that. It says on XXVIII, in the doctor's opinion, we believe and so suggested a few years ago that the action of, let, let's change a word for a moment, the action of your alcoholic food, 
your alcoholic substance on these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy. We use that term like abnormal physical reaction. That the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. These allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all. So um, I won't go on there, but you may or may not be. We, th this is the only um, disease where we self-diagnose, but we're given clear instructions how to self-diagnose. I don't know if you are or you aren't, and it doesn't matter, you know, what any human being believes. If you are, if you have the twofold nature of the disease, the allergy and the obsession. The allergy to me is I tested it. Be the scientist. Test it out. It tells us in the big book. You know, see if you can put it down. See if you can keep it down six months, a year. Now, I know I could never. I couldn't put it down for six hours. You know, the, the, the disease was progressive. When we accept that we have this problem, until we accept that, we're never going to move on with the prescription, which is the instructions in this text. Now, let's presume for a moment you are with the allergy part, like I said, my daughter who's got the peanut allergy, her physical manifestation is throat constriction. That's a physical manifestation of her allergy. My physical allergy is not throat constriction. My physical manifestation is my desire for more gets amplified, intensified. Now, maybe if you have no substances where your desire for more gets amplified and intensified, and sometimes it's unpredictable. So there are certain times where I can, I can, you know, apply some willpower and, and step away. But here's what's sort of baked into the deal here for me. I never know which way it's going to go. It's the unpredictability. It's like playing Russian roulette. You know, I pick up a, 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 an Oreo and, uh, and I'm off and running. And maybe sometimes I could stop with five Oreos. So that doesn't mean that I don't have the allergy, but at least by definition in the big book. It just means that it's the unpredictability of that, um, that physical reaction. So um, I would urge you to, the thing that, that helped me was talk to other people who, in whom the problem has been solved, recovered people, as a result of this instruction manual, and they're going to give you some ideas on how to diagnose based embedded in the big book. You know, and um, uh, hopefully that helps. So with that, I'll pass. Thank you, Bethany R. Thanks to everybody who asked questions this morning. And, of course, as always, thank you, Larry, for your generous and helpful spirit here on A Vision for You and Overeaters Anonymous as well. We're going to close from page 164. You're going to find it in your book in a chapter entitled A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. 
Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.